Hello and welcome to a special edition of the In The Money Players Podcast. This is non-racing content. We might do a little minute and a half on racing, but it's mostly non-racing content. This is one of the shows I do from time to time that sort of harkens back to my old life as a book editor. When somebody I know has a new project out, I figure I would love to talk to them about it in a way where my listeners can get a chance to hear about it because I think there's a decent chance that there's a a good Venn diagram of people who are fans of the work that I do here who might also be interested in uh, really cool literary projects. And that's what we've got for you on tap today. We're going to start, though, before we get to the the new book, which is called Lost Son by Brett Forrest. We're going to go into a little bit of history, and we'll start off by welcoming to these airwaves, Brett Forrest. Brett, what's going on, my man? Mr. Fornatel, it's great to hear your voice. Great to speak with you. You were with us there at the Preakness. That was a fun opportunity to uh, to to catch up a little bit. Had you ever been to a Triple Crown race before? Well, you know, I know you go to a lot of races, so you might have forgotten that I believe you and I went to the Belmont some years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were in the lineup. You were in the lineup for the Belmont. A little bit different atmosphere, the fancy schmancy enclosure we had at the, the Preakness compared to the old days sitting out in the grandstand at Belmont. That's right. That's right. I mean, that was sort of... Uh, you know, what you think about uh, how it used to be, right, in the grandstand. Uh, but yes. but, uh, but the Preakness was a lot of fun. I didn't know what to expect. You you sprung a, a, a gracious invitation on me, and, and that was just a lot of fun. Uh, obviously, everybody dresses up so, uh, so nicely for those events, and uh, they had a really good spread there. It was just a great time and great to catch up with you again. Your racing history as somebody who grew up in New Jersey, did you spend any time at any of the old school Jersey tracks, Atlantic City, Garden State Park? Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that because, um, yeah, Garden State uh, Racetrack there, Garden State Park was in uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, where I mostly grew up. But um, if you remember, I mean, it had a, uh, in the 70s, kind of before I was uh, living there, it, uh, it experienced a devastating fire. Right, right. Sort of gone down in legend. Uh, but the racetrack, the racetrack, because um, I'm actually working on some a project that involves that uh, that time period and and uh, the Philly area and Cherry Hill. The racetrack kind of, you know, it it, uh, it attracted an interesting element, um, as many racetracks, especially you back in those days, did. Generates? Well, not just that, but I mean, the thing is, Cherry Hill, where the racetrack was located became over the years uh, a sort of a destination for the uh, mafia figures from Philadelphia. Sure. Sure. A lot of them moved because it's just over the Delaware River from Philadelphia. And a lot of these guys sort of to get out from under scrutiny from Philadelphia PD, but also to get a little bit more land for their growing families. They, a lot of them sort of congregated in Cherry Hill and they spent time around the track. There was also a great nightclub there called the Latin Casino where Sinatra would play, James Brown. And it was just, and that was right across the street from the track. So um, those days, I, you know, those those were before my time. They did resurrect the track, though, if you remember. Yep. And I think, and and but then they, it never really caught on. I remember going to the track a few times, kind of when I was like middle school, high school. Um, but it just never, it could never become successful. And now, sadly, it's just uh, sort of a strip mall. Oh, it's, it's it's raised. Sometimes you'll see it's these tones of these old tracks, but I guess in New Jersey that doesn't really happen. It, you, you no, know. they yeah. Unfortunately, they raised the thing, and you know, I mean, I it, it's it's too bad. It would have been great to to keep it there. I just don't know why it was never viable. I guess after the fire, you would know more about this being a racing historian. I guess the the, the races that they would have there were probably relocated to other tracks. Yeah. Jersey racing has a, it's got a very complicated history and I don't know exactly why the demise of it. I do remember during, you know, that revival went probably as late as gosh, early two thousands. And I can remember a friend winning a stakes race there and having to go to the Meadowlands just to watch it. And, but yeah, it didn't, didn't hang around, uh, didn't hang around too much longer, but that's, so what is this a magazine project or a book project you might be working on about? Oh, it's uh, it's more, uh, it's a documentary project. Uh, you know, I, I did a documentary when I worked at ESPN a few years back, a true crime documentary, which was a lot of fun. And so this is, uh, this is just a, a new documentary project that I've been working on for a while that, that takes place in the uh, late 60s, early 70s in Philly and just over the water there in Cherry Hill. 
Oh, that's fantastic. We'll be on the lookout. Maybe there'll be enough racing in that. We'll have you back when that comes on. So you and I have, I think, one of the funnier relationships I ever had with an, with an author because we had moments, you know, very often when you see book publishing depicted in TV and movies, which you see a surprising amount of, actually, there's not a whole lot of reality in what you see. But but our whole deal was a lot more like a fictional thing where I would actually have to go over to your apartment and yell at you until you completed the book. <laughs> That's a good way of describing it. Yeah, I mean, I was we were you know we were quite young in those days, but you were much more experienced in the publishing world, at least the book publishing world, than I was. I I was coming out of magazines; it was my first book. I you know, and the thing is, you can never really be prepared to write your first book, and especially so when you're when you're younger. Um, but I and I, I kind of knew that, but I I wanted to dive in and just learn on the fly. Um, the the problem was, uh, you know, it was it was rather difficult and. I felt like there were parts of the book where I felt confident, other parts less confident. And then as a whole, it was just the struggle of making the thing sort of read as a, as a complete narrative one to the end. And, and uh, yeah, and I remember at least one time you, uh, I was living in Brooklyn then you were in Manhattan, I believe you were in the West village. Is that right? I might have, I probably had my place in Brooklyn, but it might've been when I was staying with Susan so much that I might've mm. lived in the West. Mm. Anyhow, I remember you, you came out one afternoon and, and uh, yeah, we sat there and uh, and just, you know, pounded it out. Another thing that was tricky about writing the book was the book that we both envisioned when we signed it up. We thought it was going to be about a successful sports story, and it turned into an epic debacle of a television story. Give us... You've... You just did the audio book for this, so it'll be fresh in your mind. Give the give the pitch on this one, because I, I think we'll sell a few of these, too, to my audience. <laughs> Jeff, that would be great. Yeah, so the book uh, is about the XFL, the uh, the failed football league from 1.0. 2000. Right. 1.0, right, as opposed to 2 or 3.0. There have now been three iterations of this thing. Um, but, yeah, so uh, XFL 1.0 was 2001. It was the joint... Uh, venture between NBC and at that time what was known as the World Wrestling Federation. Uh, so Vince McMahon, who was head of that, and then Dick Ebersol, who was the head of NBC Sports at the time. And it was their attempt to uh, yeah, revolutionize the way that sports was televised. Uh, and, and at the same time, it was a way for, for TV networks to have a, an ownership stake in a, in a pro sports league instead of continuing to, to pay exorbitant fees to rights fees to um, to them, and yeah, you're right. I mean, I I don't know if you and I really thought that it would be a great success, but I, I think we were in agreement that it would it would be very interesting, and it would be worthwhile. But we had no clue that it would be that it would. I mean, it ended up getting the the lowest recording, the lowest ratings ever in the history of primetime network TV. <laughs> It's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Um, so yeah, so we had to, we had to um, sort of switch gears on the fly. And if I remember correctly, you told me that there was a moment during the process when your boss came to you and said, I'm not sure what you think about this book. <laughs> is that right? That like before true. it was really written. No, that is true. Because I think in his estimation, I mean, true story, I think that it landed on... You, t I could be making this up, but I feel like it. The book landed. The the proposal landed right after the first. Did we have it before there was a broadcast game, or no? Or no? Uh, yeah, I believe you did, but we okay. we didn't saw, like put uh, pen to paper the on the deal after. But and I think it, I, I think it was the first game was already over. The boss was at a party where all the young people at the party were like gathered around a TV watching the XFL, and that's why we sold the book. That's, <laughs> I that's why that. I was able to buy. I probably have never told you this. That's why I was able to buy the book. And I think that as he saw, so, I mean, I think he was thinking of it as this book about successful sports league. Mm. And then as the story started to unfold, and it was very different. I think it was uh, maybe me and you brainstorming and then me pitching to him on the fly, the idea of, no, 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 this is going to be like, gosh, what there, there was, there's a, it's so terrible that I don't remember anymore, but there are a couple of famous books about, media 
that went wrong. A book about Heaven's Gate, a book about... I think it was called The Fanciest Dive. Yeah, yes. Byron, Christopher Byron, he, he blurbed the book. Yeah, I remember you telling me about it. And, and so we found these comparative... So much of publishing is find theoretically comparable titles. Anyway, we re twisted it on the fly. We got him back excited and then we were, we were good to go. <laughs> yeah. Now, now you mentioned I did the audiobook. That was, uh, yeah, that was kind of, it was almost like, a, well, I'll just say this. My a friend of mine said, uh, uh, Oh, why don't, you know, suggested I do it because we, we only published the book in hardcover. We, we didn't do an audiobook or a paperback or an ebook. Um, and I said, Oh, that's, that's an interesting idea. And, and I, I went ahead and did the audiobook and, you know, it, it was uh, the first time I'd read the book since I think you and I worked on it all those years ago. And, Re real talk. Imagine. How did it hold up for you? Well, this is what I'm coming to. So, um, you know, I've had many, many years of, of writing and reporting experience since then. So, yeah, I'm just more seasoned, uh, considerably so. Uh, you know, I've now written two two other books since then. And um yeah, I can I can see my younger self in the book sort of struggling with this or struggling with that or, or you know, learning how to say things. But then, you know, then I'll come to these other stretches in the book. They're really very interesting and are the products of of good reporting and uh, are synthesized very well. Um, and and I think that the book's strongest uh, portions are really kind of the heavily reported stuff on, on the, the origins of the league. The way it uh, was regarded at NBC and at the WWF as it was struggling through its existence, um, you know, I was able to get to to good sources, uh, and and I, there were lots of things that I, of course, just didn't remember from all those years ago. For example, um, you know, I had forgotten that that Vince McMahon had had tried to buy the Canadian Football League, the entire league, you know. Uh, because the the owners of the Toronto Argonauts, that one of the teams in that league, had come to him. They were struggling financially, and they wanted to see if he'd be interested in buying them. And he said, "I want to buy the whole darn thing." So, um, you know, you, I'm always really interested in origin stories. Yes, uh, like how, like okay, so we're here now, but this is a strange, strange situation wherever whatever the thing is we're talking about. But how did we get there? And in this instance, it was to me, it was like, how did Vince McMahon? become the because it was the xfl was his idea how did he come up with that idea and it really goes all the way back to his effort to uh trying to buy an nfl team being spurned by the nfl then again being spurned by the cfl um so th the strongest parts of the book i think relate to that kind of reporting there's a couple of specific observations i remember all these years later one and this is the thing, probably to me, maybe the most lasting legacy of the XFL is the way football is, is filmed now with the wire cameras and all that stuff. And I, and I remember you having some line describing the, the first time they had that shot with, uh, of the camera behind and, and it looked exactly like a video game. And you made some observation about unspoken, I, I'm making it up, but unspoken communication with a generation of 13 year olds or whatever. I thought that. Yeah. Was yeah. Well, that was an interesting part of it too, because that, that actually, uh, one of the, uh, the guy who was uh, working at NBC and charged with, uh, the, the visual, uh, you know, look of, of the, the telecast, he actually took that from his son. He was home and his son was playing Madden football uh, and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, with that camera angle. And that's, that's where this guy came, came this guy came, came from. Something Madden, and uh, and actually for this for because I reissued the book as a paperback also and wrote like a new forward and that's the, the point I make, yeah that's the point I make is that now it's twenty whatever years later and it's now we you know everybody had a good laugh at the XFL but now we have a perspective and we can see what it actually gave us and it gave us not only that camera angle but it gave us. Um, you know, cameras on the field of play, you know, between plays or after touchdowns, et cetera. It gave us uh, interviews with uh, with players on the sidelines during the games, uh, which was really not something we'd ever seen before. And it gave us like a lot of microphones on a, a lot of the players. So these were some of the things it gave us, but, uh, you know, and they were all quickly adopted by the NFL. That's how it works. The, the innovators rarely uh, get – it's – 
often the establishment will just take whatever worked from the innovator as it kicks them aside. Exactly. The other great line I remember, and I swear we'll get to the point of why you're actually here today. <laughs> but you had a great line in there about how the debut, um, the debut, I guess, was on against the Pro Bowl and did very well. And and the final, the the championship game was on against the draft and got its butt kicked. And you made some, <laughs> you made some yeah. observation about how it, you know, started off. Um, started off on this high point, you know, competing with actual NFL action and ended up losing to a board meeting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good one to remember. So, I mean, I, you know, the, the, the book does, does uh, largely hold up. It's a really uh, fun read and, and, uh, and, you know, I'm indebted to you for pulling it out of me all those years ago. <laughs> Send me the paperback with the new forward. And, and I, I think I want to listen to the, I want to listen to the audiobook. I want to see if I can hear you bristle at any, at any points going through some of the prose <laughs> that I can tell you no longer enjoying. Let's talk about why you're actually here today. Yes, sir. I'm not hyperbolizing to say this is one of the most interesting nonfiction books I've read in a very, very long time. It truly, it, it you can tell the the incredible level of reporting from the way you present the story and obviously from the extensive notes at the back, but it really reads like a like a crime slash like a spy slash crime novel. How much of a struggle was it for you to blend your reportage with the, the, the narrative style that you chose to execute in the pages of Lost Sun? Oh, man. Uh, boy, Pete, first of all, thanks for uh, your kind words about the book. Uh, you know, it's, 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 this kind of stuff is always a terrible struggle with oneself, you know, sitting, sitting at the keyboard early in the morning or late at night. Um, it's just the amount of material that I had to collect for this this uh, story was uh, overwhelming. I mean, we're talking about just you know, I don't know, hundreds of interviews with all types of people in various countries. Which I mean, not only the U.S. but but Russia, Ukraine, other countries, uh, Philippines, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, various languages uh, being used in in all kinds of text message communications, social media, emails, uh, official documents. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on. Um, so it was very, very challenging to sift through all that stuff and, and come out with, uh, you know, the, the bones of a, of a narrative. So the basic idea of the book for people who are completely uninitiated is this is the story of a, a young American seemingly lost in Russia. When did you first hear the name Billy Riley? December 2017. I was, so I work at the Wall Street Journal in Washington and I was in the office there and uh, I got a phone call from a source, an American guy who uh, had worked and lived in Russia and Ukraine since the 90s off and on, worked in the financial industry and had a lot of really interesting contacts, connections politically in both countries, uh, in business and also in, in the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and he's, he, I had lunch with him the, the month previous in New York, and he had hinted at something that he wanted to share with me, but he said it wasn't the right time. And, you know, if you're a reporter and you hear that from someone like that, you say, oh, man, you know, don't do this to me. You got to, you know, this is, this is my lifeblood. You got to tell me. And eventually he, uh, something, I guess, changed and, and he was ready to share it. And he called me and he told me that you're right. He said that there's this young man named Billy Riley from outside of Detroit. The essential thing that he told me was that he worked for the FBI in for about five years, <clears throat> excuse me, in counterterrorism, but not as an employee, not as an FBI agent, as something that's known as a confidential human source, which we can get into later. And, uh, and he said that, uh, that Billy had, had in, in 2015 had uh, after a year after the war had broken out in Eastern Ukraine, that Billy had flown to Russia. He was there for about six weeks in touch with his parents every day until one day his communications dropped. And very soon thereafter, Billy's FBI handler from the Detroit office visited the, the family home in Michigan, uh, professed to know nothing about the trip to Russia, began confiscating devices from the family, and then shut them out completely. It's, it's an insane beginning. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Quickly, you discovered that Billy Billy's was just an incredibly unusual 
character. I mean, this was somebody who, would you call him a, is he a genius when it comes to language and all things internet? Or is he just somebody who took a keen, took a keen interest? It, it feels sort of a savant-like character to me in my reading of the book. Right, right. Yeah, I think, well, uh, just to be clear, so so Billy um, taught himself Russian and Arabic languages online just by himself, at least to some competent degree, right? Um, which is kind of astounding because those obviously are two very difficult, not, difficult languages. Not easy languages and <clears throat> not, no. not a lot of through line, right? Between no, 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 no real connection between them. Um, but the thing is, so so Billy was in high school when 9-11 happened. And um, it, it made a, an incredible impact on him. It, it, it diverted the path of his life. And he became interested in those languages we discussed, but also in uh, world religions, global conflict, because he was trying to initially uh, understand why the attacks had happened. And he didn't, he didn't buy the, the sort of uh, pet uh, stories that were being bandied about. Uh, and he, he wanted to dig more deeply into them and learn, you know, the origin of the rage that had uh, that you know that had come out of Al Qaeda and other groups and and he uh, so the the thing is though that he he was in his own adolescence just as the internet was in its adolescence and developing social media so he was kind of the perfect age uh, to have a, a nimble agile mind to um, to you know to apply to these new technologies along with his just deep personal interest in the world. And, uh, and it, and it all, everything just sort of dovetailed perfectly. And, uh, and it, it, the, the new technologies enabled him to reach out into the world and, and talk to people who were living lives of, of real stakes. People involved in these conflicts internationally, very different than where he was growing up in, would you call it suburban Detroit? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you you can see how how unusual a situation that would be, fish out of water, etc. What do you think? And I don't want you to get into too much of you know what's actually going on in the book, but what do you think his main? Do you think his main interest was just in a deeper understanding, or do you think he he wanted to 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 truly get involved? And and how does the FBI come into play? Right, those are all good questions. I think initially he was trying to answer some questions about 9-11 and he didn't realize that his, this sort of, I don't know if you'd call it like a more academic inquiry would lead to some personal realizations because a year after 9-11, he told people at school that he was going to a Catholic school. He and his sister were attending a Catholic school outside Detroit. And he told people a year after 9-11 that he had converted to Islam. And, uh, and he uh, he could be seen at the back of the classroom sometimes w- with the Quran propped up and reading the Quran. Um, you know this this interest uh, sort of. I think at first he 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 felt very strongly as the years passed. He you know became less a part of his life, but but uh, you know fascinating. You know he, he was he was from a, a family that's sort of a little bit Polish, a little bit Irish, as I mentioned, Catholic, and he converts to Islam. Um, but, but to get to your point about the FBI, so in uh, 2010, just as he's preparing to graduate college, Billy, uh, Billy hears a knock on, on, on the door at the family house and there's an, there's an FBI agent. Because what had happened is the FBI, through some very interesting means, had come upon Billy's internet traffic and had seen that he'd been uh, communicating with some terror suspects in the Middle East. And they said, what are you doing? And when Billy told them the uh, how, how he had gotten in touch with these people, the FBI was really impressed and invited him to come do it for them. Brett, I'm so sorry. Hang on one second while I let this yeah, guy. Yeah, no problem. I'll edit that out, obviously. No problem.
three, two, one. At this point, you're making me wonder, are we dealing with an, with an agent, a double agent, a triple agent? The book will do its best to answer these questions. But when you learned of these seemingly, I mean, I don't know, they're seemingly contradictory in some way anyway, uh, threads of, of Billy's life, like at that point, I don't want you to get to what you know now, but at that point, learning about this, what was your sort of hypothesis about him? Well, it's a, you know, he, he, Billy is a contradictory figure, but I think at this point in, in the timeline, he, something here is clear to me. And that is that uh, he's graduating college with a biology degree, but he's not hopeful that this degree will lead him anywhere professionally. In fact, he doesn't really know what he wants to do with his life. I think it's, you know, look, it's a feeling we've all had at some point or another. Um, And he, you know, he, he, he was trying to figure out some kind of path for himself and, and the FBI shows up and the FBI invites him to come work for the Bureau. And for, for a guy like Billy, who didn't have a lot of friends, didn't have a girlfriend, was, you know, lived under his parents' roof um, and spent you know, most of his time, so much of his time on the computer, on the phone, learning about uh terrorist conspiracy and wars and, and all that. This was an, this was like an irresistible invitation because it validated all of his hobbies and concerns and interests. And it, and it suddenly made him, you know, it allowed him to belong to something. He didn't really belong to anything. He this had been a solitary pursuit, pursuit for him for years. So when the FBI put out this invitation, I mean, he, he readily took it up. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I think that, the zigging and zagging for, for somebody who was clearly an outsider is also something that we can, you know, that, that we can understand. I want to ask you something. Other interviewers might ask you this because you put it right there in the book. But knowing you personally and the time you spent, um, you know, leaving what you might call a straight job, seemingly promising track in the world of journalism to go and, and live abroad in Russia and the Ukraine for, for years, was there a part of you that really related to and had um, had empathy for for Billy and this, that sort of state that you were just describing of somebody who didn't who had a I mean you had paths available to you but it just didn't seem like you you necessarily wanted to follow the ones that might have been expected and, and I imagine that led you to feel connected to this character in some way yeah I mean there's so many things that Billy was doing that were foreign to me and I couldn't relate to but I think his fundamental urge uh, was something I understood. And I think it's something that is kind of universal and that his, his fundamental urge, I think was the, the urge to have his life matter, you know, to, to mean something. And in Oxford, Michigan, where he grew up, he just didn't, I think he, he saw his life just elapsing with no real result. And, um, and he was romanced by the people that he was seeing and getting to know online internationally. And at some point he wanted, he wanted to live like they lived. He wanted to have an adventure. He wanted to get out into the world and do something and be something. And that's something that I related to. Um, you know, there, we, we talk about this in the book about, you know, the, the, the lust for adventure that a lot of young men feel, feel not just young men, but, you know, especially young men, I think. Um, you know, to just, to be almost reckless and go out there and get into some problems and dangerous situations and figure it out and, and, and grow through them. And I think that's, uh, that's the thing that really, that, uh, bound me to Billy to some degree. Yeah, that makes, that makes absolute sense. Did you feel while reporting the story, you mentioned all the places it took you and, and they're not always... Um, the safest for journalists or, or Americans in particular. Did you ever feel in danger while you were working on the story? Um, you know, I wouldn't say that I, there are different types of, I mean, that feeling has degrees, right? Yeah. Um, there were, there were definitely times when I felt like, okay, somebody is following me. Somebody has his eyes on me. Um, and then there were, there were other moments when I knew, okay, so I, I have this situation presented to me, like, 
you, you know, I've broke, I had someone broker a, uh, an interview with someone else, but it was, you know, this was when I was down in Southern Russia in the city of Rostov-on-Don and the, the invitation was, you know, go meet with this guy who's in, involved in the volunteer fighter movement in Ukraine, which was, you know, quite a rather violent group of people. And uh, he's ready to meet you, but you have to drive five hours from Rostov sort of into the hinterlands and he'll be waiting for you somewhere. So, yeah. So at that point you have to gauge, okay, is this, is this a good thing? Is this something I want to do? And, you know, I ultimately did it because I felt that uh, this is, this was someone I knew who had known Billy when he was in Russia. And I thought that he could uh, unlock a door to some critical information. Was it worth the risk that you felt? It, it was in the end. Um, I mean, I, Thank goodness nothing bad happened. Um, and it was also a little bit of a different time than it is today in Russia. This was in 2018, not a high point of U.S.-Russia relations, certainly, but um, they've only deteriorated since then, uh, since you know, last year, last year's in full invasion of Ukraine. And of course, um, you know, the, the detainment of my Wall Street Journal colleague, Evan Grishkovich, um, and just illustrates how much things have changed. Yeah, no doubt about it. it, it there, yeah. there's, there's so many different paths we can go down in talking about um, the, the the sort of Russia and Ukraine parts of your of your journey. But right. one one thing that I do I do want to ask you about it is how much it helped you in terms of doing this reporting to have had that that time living there. I mean, could you have even could somebody without your language skills and, and knowledge of those reasons, regions even done the, the work that, that you were able to do on this book? Oh, it's probably, probably. Yeah. I mean, I would never, I would never hold myself up as having some unique access or abilities. I think we, we, uh, you know, we all just sort of try the best we can with this kind of work, but I would say that it gave me an incredible advantage having lived in Russia for a number of years and having worked there for even more years off and on um, over the last couple of decades and just having, you know, like that's kind of why I got involved in this story. One of the reasons at least is, is because I, I got to know Billy's parents and in early 2018, and I felt like I might be able to help them because of my experience and, and, uh, and knowledge and contacts over in Russia so, you know, I was able to hit the ground running when I arrived in Moscow that year with my local contacts. You know, I could immediately have meetings and, and with meetings with people with whom I had a level of trust and pe with people who wanted to help me. Um, and it was, it was actually via one of my old, old friends and contacts in Moscow that I got introduced to someone who eventually helped me solve the central mystery. Is that the general? I wanted to ask you about the general. Yeah, yeah, that's the general um, who, uh, you know, that's his nickname, of course. He, he was a general at, at one point in one of the uh, ministries, uh, or at least one of the agencies in Russia. And I've known him for a long, long time. He, he didn't want his name in the book, so I, so I refer to him as the general. But yeah, he was, um, this is the kind of guy when I lived in Russia who could, you know, he, he could solve any kind of problem with one phone call, no the matter what it was. The is a good illustration of it. That <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, he could he could hold an international flight at uh, one of Moscow's main airports because uh, he was, you know, running a little late from a party. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he could do all sorts of things like that. And um, and he was always someone to me who was who was uh, stood stood by his word. I'd always known him to be that kind of person. And, uh, and we had developed a close friendship over the years. And he was one of the handful of people that I went to in Moscow when I was looking for Billy. And, uh, and it was the general who introduced me to someone who was in the world of the, you know, the Russian effort in Eastern Ukraine, the military effort. And it was through this person that, you know, that we answered some fundamental questions. To me, one of your gifts as a nonfiction writer, and the best nonfiction writers share this one, you take these incredibly complicated ideas and you're able to explain them very simply. I remember this from our friendship. You know, uh, before 
I don't want to say anybody, but before somebody in my world would have known what an oligarch was or what the hell happened to um, the Soviet Union and how it, you know, evolved, devolved, whatever you want to say, into the into the Russia that you lived in. I remember you in a few paragraphs just uh, explaining to me how the how, how basically the oligarchs came to be and, and what happened in that world. And I feel like you use that gift throughout this book with very, very complicated things, whether it is the current Russian war in, in Ukraine or, or some of the other historical events that underpin this story. Because it, it's it's amazing the intersection of different complicated ideas that really provide the canvas that Lost Sun is is written on. Is, is that a skill of yours that you're aware of? Is that something you 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 had to, to work at to sort of break down these complicated ideas in, in ways that flow. For example, things you could write a whole book about are a paragraph in your book to help you tell your story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, this is, these are things that I've, these, some of these issues that you just mentioned uh, or, or portions of history or whatever, these are things that I've just been personally interested in for years. And so I've read up uh, here and there on them uh, as, as time has gone by, but I wouldn't expect the, the reader to have done that. Right. And uh, and I would expect uh, most readers would come to a book like this with some knowledge, but but kind of incomplete knowledge. And um, so I, I would never want to bore a reader. I mean, that's like the cardinal sin. You don't want to bore somebody. You want them to 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 get through it with good pacing and you want to sort of hold their hand as they're going through it. Um, yeah. So I, it's always I think and this comes through writing drafts of a book because right? as you're sort of slicing it down and and making it uh, a bit more lithe. Um, you want to, you want to give the reader exactly what he or she needs to know, but, but not too much. Right. right? And, um, and for me, that was a really interesting attraction to, for regarding Billy's stories, is that, you know, you had someone, you know, you had a single character, someone you could get to know who could be your vehicle through all of these really complicated issues and, and historical areas, uh, and political, uh, themes. Um, and, and, you know, he's the one you're, you're rooting, sort of rooting for or caring about. Um, and, and, and as you're doing that, you're learning all of this fundamental stuff. I feel like some of the most groundbreaking work you've done, some of the most reportable stuff in the book outside of the story itself is your insights into how these confidential human sources have been used historically. At least, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there's been a lot of common knowledge about that process. And I don't know how much you want to get into the specifics of that, or you want to let the book speak for itself. But but were you shocked to learn some of the details about these relationships between the you know, government, the, basically the national security apparatuses, apparatusi, whatever you, the, the plural is there, <laughs> and these and these human beings. Well, it's a good it's a good question. I mean, because yeah, I, I wish there had been more written about it because it was very hard to figure out what this program was all about. This is not something that the FBI talks much about. And what we're talking about is the the confidential human source program or the CHS program. Um, yeah, I think uh, that that's another issue that is uh, central to Billy's story and to the book because uh, he was signed up in 2010 as a CHS, and uh, when he went to Russia, he was still a CHS. Um, and so the question for me from the beginning was: Did the FBI send him over there as a CHS? And if so, what is their culpability? Um, and that, you know, that that led me down a path of deep inquiry into the history of this program. The program was created in 2004, uh, really as a reaction to 9-11 and the mandate from Congress and the administration that the FBI do more to get ahead of terrorist conspiracy to prevent another 9-11, right? Um, as we all know from all the TV shows and movies that we watch, that uh, informants and sources have are like sort of the fundamental or a fundamental part of the FBI's work. I mean, FBI agents sort of coercing people to wear a wire and, you know, go meet with gangsters, that kind of stuff. Um, but after 9-11, things changed a bit and they basically consolidated all of their informants and criminal cooperators into this CHS grouping. But then the FBI became more of an intelligence agency 
and it started working sort of outside of the Department of Justice. And it wasn't looking so much for evidence to be used in court. It was looking for intelligence that it could develop to short circuit, mainly terrorist conspiracy before they could kind of coalesce. So um, they were, the FBI began scooping up more people like Billy, who, you know, from the outside looking in, you would say, this guy has no experience. He lives at home with his parents. Like, why, why would he be valuable to the FBI? Well, you know, Billy had these language skills that the FBI largely lacked. Billy had this just innate knowledge of the Arab Spring and the rise of ISIS just because he was personally interested in it. So, um, you know, this, this CHS program was fascinating to me, and it also raised a lot of ethical questions for the FBI. Being a digital native in and of itself must have been just a huge asset, right? In those early days. Now I'm sure that it's digital natives everywhere work in social media and this and that. But as you mentioned, in these early days, finding somebody with this guy's specific combination of skill sets would have been as rare as as hen's teeth. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's certainly true. But I would also add that it, it was kind of surprising to me kind of how flat-footed the FBI was when it came to these issues. Um, you know, they're just, there were, I don't remember the exact number, it's in the book, but the, the, there was a paltry number of people who spoke Arabic at the FBI. At that time. And, um, yeah, and I'm saying years, years after 9-11. Yeah, that's um, crazy. Um, and, you know, because the reason that, that just so people like to understand this clearly, is the reason that that's important is because, you know, the FBI is, is in, is, in charge of counterterrorism, counterintelligence domestically in the U.S., it's their job to prevent such attacks. And if you don't, if you don't speak the language of the people you're investigating, that's a problem. Yeah, not not easy. When did you know this was a book? It started. You mentioned your role at the Journal, and it started as a journal article. I mean, when you when you filed that article, did you think you were you were done and dusted with this? I mean, I feel like as recently as a, a year and a half ago, I, I feel like I was talking to you about what your next book was going to be, and 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 this didn't necessarily uh, leap up at the top of things you, you were saying. What, without hmm. spoiling, what can you tell us about the evolution of the story from article to book? Well, um, you may not believe it, but um, remember that phone call I mentioned in December 2017 when I yep. first heard of the case. On that phone call, as I was listening, I thought that this might be a book. Interesting. Yeah. And you never know how things are going to play out, of course. Um, and my priority as a reporter at the journal was to figure out if this was something that um, that could that I could follow on behalf of the paper. Uh, so, the, you know, the incremental steps here along the way from that phone call to the book publishing, of course. But but in that first phone call, I saw the the, the bones of and possibly a great narrative. You, know, you had, as I mentioned, you had this, a, a solitary figure, a, a main character who you could get to know, who could carry you through these uh, important issues of the day. I mean, you had you had a, a family that was struggling to find their son. You could get to know them in a book, um, and you could um, you, you had a central mystery that could that could carry a, a reader's interest. Now, of course, there were many other parts of the project that came together later and without which we probably wouldn't have been able to do a book but uh, but I saw that it had great potential immediately the the elevator pitch into the wild with spies <laughs> yeah yeah well the, the into the wild always came up uh, the story of Chris McCandless you know who who died in Alaska the uh, of course, there we had a known book. there we had a known fate. Here we had an unknown fate, which is a which is a a, a key a key difference. But it is yeah one that I think if you enjoyed that book, I'd say there's it's no stretch to say you'd enjoy this one. But when the so when the article came out, you were still thinking books. See, I thought at that point you might have punted on even if you'd had the idea in 2017 after the first rounds of reporting. I, I I'd be a little surprised if you tell me you always still thought it would it would be a book. It felt like something you you might be done with. No, I, I was always, uh, you know, especially when we were able to answer some of the fundamental questions, I realized, okay, now this actually is a book and uh, I want to pursue that um, and see if I can get a publisher interested because it just, it, it, especially given my interest and my experience in, uh, in Russia and Ukraine, 
it uh you know i knew that there was something special i could bring to the subject matter and to the book and uh that sort of back to your earlier question something maybe that another reporter who didn't have those years in those countries wouldn't be able to to bring to bear so for me it was uh, not just um, a really important special story about um the need for fbi oversight the the collapse of relations between russia and the us and, and all these other things but it was also it became intensely personal for me right that's super interesting because because of your background and the amount of time you 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 put into it and when did you know I mean, you must have had points during this process where while you wanted it to be a book, you thought it could be a book, you weren't you weren't sure you were gonna get the, the the solution to be able to make it a book. I mean, did you did you ever wrestle with the idea that you might not be able to that you might not be able to to finish this as more than an article? Yeah, for sure. I and and it wasn't it wasn't as if I was uh uh fixated on writing a book while I was reporting the the story for an article. I mean I the thought of a book was there, but it, you know, I shoved it aside because this was a difficult thing to report. And, um, and my main goal was to find a solution for the family, find a solution for Billy, uh, and, and get to the, the reporting to a state that, uh, that my editors would accept an article at the wall street journal. And, and once, once all of those hurdles were surmounted, then I could sort of return to this thought I had originally about telling the story in a larger format. Was there pressure there? Wrap this up, wrap this up. Give us a, you know, you eventually got to the, the, the perfect ending, but for a while there, it must've been, it must've been a little tense, right? I mean, this it is, was, yeah. it, it was in the office. I think you're talking about. Yeah. Because uh, the journal is, you know, a newspaper as in news. Right. And, and so uh, so many of my colleagues, uh, they have uh, a beat and they're covering it all the time and they're writing, you know, an article several times a week or sometimes they have busy weeks where they're writing every day. And here I was like a year into this thing with nothing to show for it. And um, yeah, and I, there were definitely I had supporters among the editors, but most of them, they weren't intimately involved in what I was doing. All they saw was, you know, a lack of bylines. So um <laughs> So, and, and also, you know, I did, I did sort of submit um, an early draft of the piece and it was evaluated by some of the, you know, higher ups and they said, yeah, yeah, it's great, but you know, it lacks an ending and you gotta, you gotta go back to the drawing board. You know, these are all, these, these kinds of stories are familiar to anybody who works on difficult projects. There are all these stages and, you know, in the end, if, if you're fortunate enough to have them be realized, you know, you can, you can have a beer and celebrate, but you look back and, you know, there are many times when, when it, I thought it wouldn't fly. Last question might be the hardest question. If you could ask Billy Riley one question, what would it be? Oh, Pete, you're killing me here, man. <laughs> you <laughs> this only was get fun one. until now. <laughs> you only get one. Uh, yeah. And, I, uh... And, and if it leads to a spoiler, we can omit it. But if it's... If sure. It, I thought you might be, I thought you might have one. Well, no, I mean, it's, uh, th there's so many, uh, there's so many points to, to this story that, that I would like to clarify, despite the fact that, that we were able to discover so much. Um, the, the one thing that I'm still sort of, I'd like to say determined to find out, although it's, it's difficult to discover it is, um, you know, the, this, the, the actual level of the FBI's involvement in his trip to Russia and his disappearance there. Um, yeah, for those of you who, who go ahead and read the book, you'll see that there, you know, we uncovered a lot of really provocative and, and, and essential information about on, on this point itself, but that there's still something that the FBI is hiding. And that's, I think, principally what I'd still like to know. Well, that's a good one. That's a very good one. You get you in any bad sus with the FBI from this book? Uh, let's just say we're not pen pals at the moment. Um, you know, I, uh, I did. Not on the I did holiday all... card list, as we say around here. I, I'm not, I haven't gotten one yet, but I keep looking. Um, but uh, I mean, you know, there were meetings uh, before the article was published. And I, you know, at the journal, we have a policy, a kind of no surprises rule of, uh, of sharing information that is going to be in an article with uh, 
with individuals or businesses or agencies that are mentioned in it so that they have an opportunity to correct anything or to comment. And so I gave the FBI more than a hundred questions before the article published and they didn't answer a single one. Um, they gave me one sentence and they said that the FBI had never sent Billy Riley to Russia and that was it. So, um, you know, when I had a draft ready of the book, I recontacted them because I had actually had new reporting and new information, which was very provocative and interesting. And I said, I wanted to share it with them. And they quickly said, yeah, we're not interested. Everybody should buy this book. Lost Son is what it's called. Brett Forrest is the man who wrote it. An American family trapped inside the FBI's secret wars. You get it at your local independent bookstore. You can order it online, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Brett, any closing thoughts before I let you get on to your next interview? Well, uh, Pete, just uh, you're very kind and gracious to have me on. And, and I have a question for you. Hit me. When, when are we going to do our next book together? That's a great question. I, I, maybe we'll get this. Uh, come visit the yearling sales in Saratoga this year. Tell me what you think. Well, it's on my calendar. I know we've been talking about it for years. And, uh, and uh, I think it's August, early August, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it is. It is. So that'll be a good uh, good opportunity for us to discuss uh, our next project together. Yeah, and I, I might be doing more publishing over here at In the Money Media. Oh. We'll start with some low-hanging fruit, bring some classic racing books back into print. But, you know, Great. my view, and you're, you're a writer at a level for which this statement doesn't apply. But for most writers, publishers these days, just they, they don't, what they take doesn't justify what you have to give them. And you're almost better off going with a place like us where, you know, you might not get an advance or a tiny advance, but you'll get a huge chunk of the back end. So it's not completely crazy to think there might be an idea out there we could collaborate on again, or I'm always available freelance, Brett. Keep that in mind too. Oh, oh, interesting. Well, we'll have plenty to discuss over maybe a whiskey or two up or at the year. Or four. Or three or four. <laughs> Cheers, my friend. Brett Forrest, the author of Lost Son. Check it out. Holler at me if you have any questions. Oh, give out your Twitter real quick, assuming you're on there. Oh, boy. I think it's um, at uh, Brett, B-R-E-T-T underscore Forrest with two R's. Follow him. Follow me at Looms Boldly. Hit me up through the contact page over at InTheMoneyPodcast.com. Brett, thanks for your time. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. My usual close doesn't apply here. I usually say, may you win all your photos. This time, I'm just going to say, I'll steal from Spencer. We will see you next time.